We're spending our time this evening in Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Clearly, this uh, psalmist is, is struggling with what he perceives to be happening around him and what he knows about God and his character and his justice. And it's, it's something we can relate to. Sometimes we feel like justice kind of turns a blind eye at times. Um, 2004 to 2007 or so, you know, banks made a bunch of loans they shouldn't have made to people who shouldn't have taken them. Uh, and they invested them, invested them in ways they shouldn't have. And they collapsed the entire financial market, leaving millions in foreclosed homes and people's pensions and retirement accounts completely drained by December of 2009 because of how steep that market crash was. And for this great injustice and this act of avarice and greed, what did they get? No one went to jail. We got a questionably effective Frank Dodd Act to help prevent it from happening again. But it seemed like the wealthy and powerful on Wall Street got away with it. Just this past year, there was the college admission scandal where A-list celebrities used significant bribe money and, and connections to collude with coaches to get their kids into Ivy League schools, into prestigious schools, and thereby deny an education, uh, networking opportunities, a professional career, a certain level of prestige. They denied all of that to qualified students so that they could get their kids in. And for that, they got a fine and 60 days in jails, which was, which was commuted so that they could spend the holidays with their family. Um, where's the justice? You can, you can go back farther in history. You can go 
to the industrial revolution you know steel mills and, and industry is booming and to fuel all of that they needed cheap labor in mines and whenever the miners felt like striking the owners just got guns and decided they were going to end the strike with violence or they would use economic oppression if, if you're familiar with Tennessee Ernie Ford uh, 16 tons load 16 tons what do I get another day older and deeper in debt st. Peter don't you call me because I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I work a hundred hours in the mines and all my pay goes back to my employer because I have to rent my shovel and I have to rent my house and I have to rent my utilities and all my food is exorbitantly priced and it comes from my employer so my money just goes right back to them. and they got away with it there was no justice you can go to uh, if you remember Jacob Jastrzemski did a missions trip uh, out in the Dakotas on a, on a reservation and, and you could see the the natives wearing shirts that said honor the treaty because our country had made a treaty with the nations to give them a portion of land and they didn't honor it they tried it in American courts and they they abdicated the responsibilities in the treaty and there was no no recourse for the natives and so you'll you'll see that and and those ramifications are felt on reservations to this day so we, f we feel like as we look at our world, there's, there's two justice systems. There's one for the rich and the powerful and the well-connected, and there's one for the rest of us. One receives not but mercy and grace, and the rest of us just kind of hope we can afford a good lawyer. Um, so as our, as our culture, as our denomination, even as we as individuals struggle with this idea of justice, biblical justice and injustice, and what does that look like, I thought a meditation on this psalm could help. So we're going to dive right in, and we're just going to stop at the first word. <laughs> truly, truly God is good to Israel. In, in the Geneva Bible, like the 1590 version that John Calvin would have used, he translated it, yet truly. Um, he put a conjunction in the middle, like, but truly. And experientially, like in a Kierkegaard kind of a way, I really like that. Because the, the psalmist is going to, think about some pretty deep things and have some serious questions for God, and he's, he's really wrestling with this. And it gives the feeling, at least to me, that he's, he's been like lying in his bed trying to fall asleep, and he's just going over this over and over in his mind, and he's going round and round in circles like, God is good, but these evil people prosper. Why doesn't God prosper the righteous? But God can't author evil. And he's going round and round, and finally he gets up in a huff, lights his lamp, takes out the quill and the scroll, and starts... All right, in light of all of that torment that my and anxiety that I'm feeling, yet God is good to Israel. You can feel like this torment, this anguish in him that he's been struggling to figure this out, and he just he just has to get it on paper almost. Like if you have a big decision or if you're dealing with something like doctrinally that you can't figure out for me, I have to get it out on paper. I have a whiteboard in my office. I just got to get it out of my head so I can see see it all in one at one time and kind of organize it and figure it out in it feels like this is what the psalmist is doing. He's, he's in torment over what he sees happening and what he knows to be true of God, and he can't quite reconcile it. And so he wakes up, and he puts pen to paper, and he starts with this. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He starts with an affirmation of God's character. He starts with God's goodness. God is good, and he's good to who? He's good to Israel. He's good to the church. He's good to his covenant people. God rules over all, but he takes a special interest in the welfare of his covenant people. And then he further qualifies it to those who are pure in heart. 
This harkens for me back to like Romans 9, where Paul says, you're not descendants of Abraham just because he's your great-great-great-great-grandfather or whatever. No, there are people who are children of the flesh, who look like they belong, and there are people who are children of the promise, who have been touched by the Holy Spirit, who have been regenerated and given a heart of flesh and believe. These are the covenant people. It's not a biological thing. It is a spiritual regeneration that makes you a child. And this is what the psalmist is saying. He's good to Israel. He's good to Israel, those children of promise, those who love the Lord, those who are of the faith. So he starts with his affirmation, and then he goes on to almost a warning or some self-reflection. God is good, but for me, I got to be careful here because my feet almost slipped. Because I saw, I know what, I know that God is good, but I saw what these evil people are doing and how well they're doing. And I almost took it hook, hook, line, and sinker. Um, He's reflecting on his self-awareness. He knows that he has a proclivity or prone to wandering, right? I'm prone to wander in this direction. So he starts with the affirmation of God's character, and then he quickly does some self-reflection and says, I have to be careful because this is the way I feel my heart going. And so by doing this, these two things, he's almost setting up a guardrail for the rest of the discussion. I'm He's taking on a theonomy, a justification for the existence of evil in a world where there's a sovereign and good God. And it's really easy to get into dangerous territory there. You know, we don't want to make God the author of evil. We don't want to make God the one who tempts us to do evil. So he puts up these guardrails so that as I go through my premises, if I get to a conclusion that is against the idea that God is good to his people, I know I've gone too far and I've got to start over. That's a a really good application for us as we're struggling, whether it's with doctrine or Christian living, how do I live in light of X or Y or what should I do in this situation? Let's start with a, an affirmation of the simple things, of the, of the that attributes of God, the simple truths of scripture, so that as we go through and make our conclusions and our reasoning, we have a mile marker. If you went past McDonald's, you've gone too far. If you've gone past the goodness of God so that God is no longer good, you've gone too far. Uh, you know, go to jail, don't collect $200, that kind of a thing. And so after this introduction and this uh, setting up the guardrails, as it were, he turns his attention to his problem. He starts with the wicked. In verse 4, they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. He's saying these people are the picture of health and beauty. You know, they're not like those poor schmucks in the mine dying at age 28 from all kinds of maladies and conditions. They're not dying the young death of the oppressed. These people live healthy, beautiful lives. And the whole time they're living, they're not even reminded of the mortality. They're not sick. They're not doubled over from osteoporosis and malnutrition. These people have it good. They're not, they are not dying, and they don't feel like they're dying, and they don't look like they're dying. Unlike the people they're oppressing who are dying young, and the whole time they're dying, they're hurting. Uh, in the words of the 90s band R.E.M., the, these people are just happy, shiny people. They're, they're, they're good to go. And then verse 5, not only are they healthy and, uh, and beautiful, but they're wealthy. They don't have your kind of problems. Unlike the people they oppress, these people don't go to sheets and make sure it doesn't go past $5. They unclick it right as soon as it turns $5 and hope that's enough gas to get them to payday, right? 
these these wicked wealthy people they they don't feed their kids hot dogs and mac and cheese because that's the only thing they can afford they're not picking between satin and silk georgette no they're picking between dollar general brand and great value brand now don't get me wrong there's no inherent vice in being wealthy and there's no inherent virtue in being poor but these particular people are oppressors they're using usury extortion uh, they're using their power for unjust gains and when they get those gains, they have no regard for anyone else. They don't want to solve the problems of the poor or the oppressed. They're looking out for themselves. And this is why the, the psalmist is struggling with them. He, in his head, when he, you know, you can see kind of where he's coming from. Like, since Genesis 3, there has been suffering and misery and hardship in the world. And Lord, for some reason, these people get the exemption? They're exempt from suffering. They use their power for wicked or wickedness and power for themselves. They're not honoring you. They're not helping anybody. Completely self-serving, and they live long, healthy, happy lives. Okay, all right. Mm -hmm. Psalmist is struggling here. And then he looks at not only their outward estate, but what are they like on the inside? Verse 6, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment with the same kind of ostentatious glimmer that a fat gold chain would have in a Jerusalem sun. So these people are about their pride. I don't know if you saw a video on YouTube. It was floating around last month, but it was, uh, it was from Saudi Arabia, and there was uh, a wealthy Saudi businessman, and he was basically at a picnic with, with some friends, and he was telling the stories. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Saudi labor market, they take poor people from other Muslim countries, uh, Egypt, Pakistan, especially Pakistan, and they basically treat them as slaves and indentured servants. They roundly abuse these workers. So this guy was a wealthy businessman sitting around with his friends, and he's saying, yeah, I hired this Egyptian to do some work for me. And uh, after the job was done, he came to pay, and I said, I don't have any money. I'm not paying you. And he came around the next day, and I said, I don't have any money to pay you. And he kept doing this for like a week. And so finally, the Egyptian came back, and I said, listen, I'm never going to pay you for your work. You're small, you're puny, I'm bigger and stronger than you are. If you try to do anything about it, I'll beat the living stuffing out of you, essentially. So the Egyptian got frustrated and he insulted the Saudi guy. And the Saudi made good on his promise and he beat the guy. So the Saudi man went home wealthier, well, at least not poorer, and without any punishment. And the Egyptian man went home bloodied, bruised, and without any remuneration. And as he told this story, his friends are laughing. Like, they're looking on in at least entertainment, most of them in admiration. Like, this guy's figured it out. He got his work done. He's not any the poorer for it. Sounds like he's found the formula. And so this is the kind of pride and violence, or pride of violence, that the psalmist is talking about. The Egyptian has no means of, of recourse here. He can't go to court. He can't hire a lawyer. He is oppressed. Another metaphor is used in verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. These people grow fat. They're gluttons of power and of vainglory. They're overfilled with pride. They, they can't contain it. They're intoxicated on this prosperity, thinking foolishly that it was from their own hand that they accomplished all of this. But they're fat 
their fat pushes their eyes. What does that mean? Their fat, uh, how does he word it here? Their eyes swell out through fatness. So these folks are gluttons for power, intoxicated on prosperity, and their fat pushes their eyes past their natural boundaries. It's as if their hunger, their avarice, lust starts with the eyes. It's pushed out beyond the natural boundaries. They have no bounds to their greed. Everything is to be theirs. Contentment is always a bridge too far. They have no rein on their greed and their avarice and their lust for power or wealth or whatever. And all of this pride that they fill themselves on, it just pushes that pride or that greed and avarice out farther and farther. And there's nothing to stop them. Starting in verse 8, we see how they treat their fellow men. In addition to how they are internally, this pride, this violence, this greed, this avarice, how does that manifest itself in their relationship with men? Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. Notice the word loftily, high above. They're looking down on everybody else. If there were a common man in their presence, the best situation for the common man is that this oppressor is apathetic, that he just doesn't care about this guy. Because heaven help the man, the common man, the oppressed man, who has something that the oppressor wants, or could be a stepping stool for more power for the oppressor, because he has no qualms with taking this man's property, ruining his reputation, exploiting his labor, even if it's by legal means, legal per the state. Um, he'll, he'll just take it. He rails against the poor, and he views them as a means to his own end. And he doesn't treat God much differently. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. If he rails against the inhabitants of the earth, he rails against their creator too. If you remember in, in Deuteronomy, there's the, the warning that God gives the Israelites as they're preparing to go into the land. I've referenced this a couple times where he says, now listen, you're about to go into a land that you didn't fight for, because I'm going to win it for you. And you're going to live in houses that you didn't build, because I'm giving them to you. And you're going to eat from the vine that you didn't plant, because I'm giving it to you. And there's going to be a temptation for you to sit back and say, I'm pretty great, look what I just did. And God says, you do that, and you will be cursed. And he gives a pretty extensive and detailed list of just exactly what that curse looks like. But this is the blasphemy of the oppressor, of the wicked man who uses his power for his own ends. That in receiving this bounty from the Lord, for it is, Lamentations 3, it is both the good and the evil that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So this wicked man who has received a bounty from the Lord, he denies God worship and gratitude and instead starts worshiping the money, the power, the influence, whatever. It's, it's very much like what Paul says in, in, in Romans 1. Uh, starting in, we'll say, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal po- eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Here's the important part. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles, or in this case, influence, power, and money. These people are completely deceived. They've deceived themselves, and they, they fail to acknowledge God and honor him as God, and in so doing, they blaspheme God. And to a certain extent, that should solicit from us pity. How can you be so ignorant? How can you be so foolish? But in reality, it's not them that we should pity alone. Because in verse 10, we see that this wickedness is a contagion. And it's not a contagion for other unbelievers. No, it's a contagion for the church. Verse 10, therefore his people. Whose people? God's people. Us. The church. Therefore his people turn back to them, that is, the, the wealthy oppressors. And they say, we don't find any fault with them. This is the temptation that they're falling into. They say, because God prospers the wicked, then it's okay to envy or even emulate what they're doing. When they look upon the wicked, they're seeing prosperity, they see ease, they live a good life, they have a nice house, they're not sweating, they're not sick, they're, they're, they got it made. And then when I look into my own life and the way of sanctification and the pursuit of holiness, where it's just so vexating to not see much progress, it takes a lot of discipline, I'm exhausted, I'm weary, I'm burdened to a certain extent. Why would, I, why would I do this when that obviously seems like the better choice? And so people who claim to have faith, who claim to be a member of the covenant community, they prove themselves to be hypocrites and counterfeits because they see the God of money and prosperity and ease and they prove themselves faithless as they leave the way, capital W. And they don't do it just because there's a shiny object over there dangling that they want. No, they, they have a reasoned justification for this. They're not stupid. They say, how can God know? Is there, not no, or is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. So they make a couple accusations against God, and they live in light of those very logical, it's a very logical progression. It's wrong, but it's logical. First they say, God is ignorant. He doesn't know. Because if he knew, he'd do something about it. So God doesn't know. And if if God doesn't know about something, then he's not ruling over it. Therefore, God is not sovereign, right? So if God doesn't know, then he is not sovereign. And if he is not sovereign, then things are just happening by chance. And these people got it figured out. These wicked people can tip the odds in their favor, and I'm going to ride that train all the way home. If that's your premise, that's a reasonable conclusion. It's a bad premise. But you can see the logic. They're making bad loans and selling them off at huge profits. Yeah, people will probably be foreclosed on. I can retire. My kids will go to college for free. Party on. And we have to be careful about this, too. Not that we are, are those hypocrite, never were Christians who leave the church, but we may not openly blaspheme God in this way. We may not say, God, you are being unjust. We may not have our Habakkuk moment and demand answers or, or our Job moment. But we can, in the quiet of our hearts and our minds, hear a new story and go, really, really, that's going to go unpunished. 
just because it's said quietly doesn't make le- make it less of a sin. God does know. And God is sovereign. And to not live in light of that is sin. So we must be careful. So the psalmist talks about the wicked. He talks about what they are like externally, healthy, wealthy, wise. Well, not wise. Uh, he talks about them internally, avarice, pride, violence. He talks about how they they affect the church, the covenant community, and now he, he turns introspective in verses 12 through 14. It's almost like a, an internal soliloquy, a speech to himself that he's kind of writing out here. Verse 12 through 14. Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak... Well, that's a bridge too far. All right. So from his vantage point... They're always at ease. These people are always prospering, and they're always going to prosper. And as long as God prospers these people with money, wealth, and power, they can continue to oppress. It's a roundabout way of saying, God, you're enabling this. You're responsible for this? It's almost like he's rewriting Lamentations 3. If you look at Lamentations 3, uh, verse start 21... But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What the psalmist is expressing in verses 12 through 14 is that completely flipped. But this I call to mind, and therefore I dread. The steadfast love of the Lord was never here. My vexations never come to an end. Every morning, my tribulations are new. Where's God in all of this? Or if you want to be less sublime, you could quote Lincoln Park. Tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. Where's what? I'm, I'm, I'm drowning here. And every morning, it just gets worse. I'm rebuked, I'm hated, I'm despised. And I'm trying to do the right thing. These people are violent, lecherous fools. And they can't fail. They just keep on winning. And it's ridiculous. And he's so frustrated. So frustrated. But then we hit verse 15. Remember his guardrail. God is good to his people. He's good to those who are pure in heart. He hit his guardrail. He ran right into it. Because in his assertions in 12 through 14, he's saying, God is not good to those who pursue holiness. God is good to those who are wicked. He's completely violated his guardrail. And so he hits verse 15, and he realizes it, so he's got to start over. He said, if I would have said this, that is to say, if I had gone to a place of authority, if I had gone from the throne or from the pulpit, and I had said what I just wrote down, I would have done, it wouldn't have just been dishonest. It would have been injurious to the people of God. And note the contrast here. Remember the wicked, they have no regard for the welfare of others. They look only to the self for their next move. But what does the psalmist here do? He took his eyes off of his thoughts, off of his heart, off of his sense of self, and looked out among the people, and he saw sheep without a shepherd. And he said, I can't rob these people of their hope of salvation. I can't tell them a lie. The 
So he has to start over again. He knows that it's a lie because he set up that guardrail. God is good. Now my conclusion is that maybe God isn't so good, so I violated that. I have to start over. And, and he admits it. This is, this is tough stuff. When I, verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, because I've got to start over again, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So he's recommitting to understanding the conundrum, and he admits his own frailty. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I discerned their end. So the solution he found was in the sanctuary of God. Now, this isn't some kind of translation into the heavenly temple vis-a-vis Isaiah 6. It's not some kind of vision of the throne room of God, Revelation 4 and 5 with John. He went to the temple in Jerusalem, to that sanctuary, and it is in that sanctuary that the word of God is kept, where the word of God is read, and where the word of God is preached. He sought wisdom from the reading and preaching of God's word, and there is another point of application for us. When we look to self for all of our answers and we rely only on what we can see from our perspectives, that is our end. It is frustration. We're going to hit that guardrail. Because when we do that, we'll find an answer, we'll find a philosophy, we may even find an identity, but it's an identity or an answer or philosophy that's built on shifting sands because we change, we're malleable. But when we go to our creator who knows us inside and out and who has planned those good works for us and knows how we operate, when we seek answers outside of ourselves and acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways, Proverbs 3, we find discernment, we find wisdom. We find a life built on solid ground. We're not tossed to and fro. So that's his solution. Or that's how he obtains his solution. And here's his answer about what to do, how to think, how to feel about all of this injustice that's going on, seemingly unpunished. And he starts in verse 18 and goes through 20. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Here we find a description of reality from heaven's perspective, with the scope of eternity brought to bear. And we see a couple things. Notice that everything through verse 14, essentially, it's, it's the fault of the wicked. They're doing it. They're the ones who are being violent. They're the ones who are greedy and avarice. But when we get to their end, who is the active character? It is Lord. And really, the Lord was active back then in verses 4 through 14, just as much as he is through, uh, in verses 18 through 20. So let's take a with There are three ways that we can see that the Lord is active here. First, the wicked, with their power and their pride and their wealth, think that they are safe and secure, that the Lord from the perspective of eternity in heaven, really has them on a razor's edge, just waiting for them to fall. When they fall, they will be broken, like bashed upon the rocks. If you think of Romans 9, again, he says that about, uh, Paul says about Pharaoh, the Lord raised Pharaoh up so that the Lord's name may be proclaimed. He rose an evil, oppressive tyrant up and blessed him with all kinds of bounty just to let him fall harder and farther and faster and display his justice, the Lord's justice, and display the Lord's glory and to make his name known among the lands. So all of this evil was 
these people did it and they wanted to do it, but the Lord was sovereign over it. Just like the Lord was sovereign over the marauders who came and took all of Job's stuff. It's not like he forced them to go do it. These marauders would have always wanted to do it. The Lord just withdrew his sovereign hand and let them have at it. Very much like these wicked people. The Lord is withdrawing the mercy of common grace and allowing them to go their own way. And they do what they want to do. They perform all kinds of wickedness and oppression. So not only do they think they are secure when they are really on the razor's edge, but they also think that their glory and their honor and their legacy will last forever. But the Lord brings them to a swift and utter end, destroyed completely. And the wicked really think of themselves, think something of themselves. They think they're awesome. But to the Lord, it's almost like that last dream you have right before you wake up. And you wake up and you kind of do one of these and all of a sudden it's gone. You can't remember any of the details, even if you wanted to. Like, they're just not even worth remembering. Like, phantoms, it's like almost like an etch-a-sketch, gone. Um, from heaven's perspective, these people are not even worth remembering or notice. They're phantoms, gone. So the psalmist has made some pretty startling observations about these wicked oppressors. He's come to realize that on his own, he cannot discern their end, but... When he faces God's truth and God's word, he finds answers, but then he starts the introspection again, and he sees how wrong he was at the beginning. All right, verses uh, 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Now, isn't that interesting? I was ignorant and brutish. I was like a beast towards you. What did the wicked people, the people in the church who had forsaked the way, what did they accuse God of? Is there knowledge in the Most High? God, you're ignorant. And what's in the psalmist's confession? I'm the ignorant one. I was acting as if you had no knowledge. I was like a wild beast. They accuse you of not being sovereign because you don't know. I'm the one who, acts, who was acting like there was no sovereign ruler. I was the brutish beast acting as if I were uh, an authority unto myself. Here we see his repentance. I'm ignorant and I'm living like an unbridled beast. In his own way, he had become that which he had been railing against. And that's what we have to be careful of as well. So then we get to a conclusion. Verses 23 and 24. He confesses his sin and he clings to grace. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. He, he holds on to the gospel promise of God's presence, like in Psalm 23. In the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. He, he clings to the gospel promise of God's guidance and wisdom, like in Proverbs 1 through 9. He clings to the gospel promise of glorification, like the ironic blessing. The Lord will lift his countenance upon me. He will turn his face towards me. And I will know peace, and I will know grace. And then in verse 25 and 26, we, we see the fruit of that repentance, the metanoia, the changing of the mind. It's not enough to just name the sin, but it requires a, a change, a 180. And here we see it. Nothing on, earth have I uh, nothing on earth do I desire besides you. This is a very different tone from what we see in verses 4 through 14. He wanted everything in the world. I want the blessing. I want the cease of suffering. I want righteousness. I want uh, justice. And none of those things is wrong. 
it's not wrong to want the blessing, and it's not want, wrong to want the righteousness of God more evident in our world, and it's not wrong to want God's justice to be known, but this, this is not a casting of his cares on the Lord, visa Peter. This is a, his was a pity party. He wasn't bringing his concerns before God with faith that God was going to do anything about it because he was living ignorantly and brutishly. But now he sees, no, it's not my will, O Lord, but it's yours. You are righteous, you are just, and I will wait for you to manifest it in your way and on your time. And then he says, even if I suffer, you know, though my... uh, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. You know, I may die the death, the young death of the oppressed. I may be osteoporotic and hunched over from malnutrition because I can't afford to eat anything other than a gruel or whatever. But you know what? In the end, God will glorify me. I have to bring the scope of eternity the perspective of heaven, even to my suffering, and find that there is blessing for me and glory for God, even in my suffering, unjustly. Verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. Read that in light of verses uh, 18 and 19. The Lord makes them fall to ruin. They fall farther away by his hand, and when they are far, verse 27, they perish. Verse 19. They're destroyed in a moment like those phantoms. And then here, not just because uh, it's not just because of how wicked they were to their fellow man that the oppressors will perish and be destroyed, but it's because they were unfaithful to God. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you, and in those oppressors, their unfaithfulness to God was manifest in how they treated each other. Verse twenty-eight: As far as the wicked are from God, so close are the repentant and the faithful to Him. The false sense of security uh, that wealth can bring betrays the wicked, but the refuge that the obedient find in their Lord is perfect. And so, and so we end with a call not to revenge, not to take up your sword and make this right, not with a crusade or an inquisition. No, we're called to testify, to witness to the goodness of God, that we may tell of all of his works, just like he says in Romans 9. I raise Pharaoh up, I create this, or I, I don't create, I allow for this injustice to exist, and I withhold my righteous hand for a moment so these people can rise to power, so that I may make an example of them, so that my glory will know, and so that the nations will know that I am the Lord, and I am the one who saved you. So we have a call to share this gospel grace, this gospel promise. And so, uh, Wrapping it up here, a couple points of application. When you're in turmoil over a big decision, over a troublesome doctrine or or a difficult situation, I really think that the pattern that we see at the beginning of the psalm is, is supremely helpful. Start with the doctrinal truth. God is good. God is love. God provides for me. Let's take that one as an example. God provides. God will take care of all of my needs. And then... Be self-aware. Be aware of your proclivities and how your heart would wander from your Lord or from from the way, capital W. I have a proclivity to work too much, to, to put all of my effort into making sure that I have more money or enough money or whatever you want to say. I have to be aware of what my temptations are, where my weaknesses are, 
So I can pair that with the, that simple affirmation, God is my provider, Jehovah Jireh. And then don't turn to self for your answers. You need to be aware of yourself, but you should not build your answers on just yourself. We need to turn to the reading and the preaching of God's word. Run to your sovereign creator. This is why uh, the grace of pastoral counsel cannot be overstated. Having men who have dedicated their lives to gospel ministry available, full of wisdom, who know how to read the Bible, who know how to apply the Bible, to share your burdens with them is always a good, a good move. Um, they're charged with your care and for your protection and to act in your best interest from an eternal perspective. Secondly, what do we do when we see injustice and when we experience it? First off, we shouldn't be surprised by it because since Cain killed Abel, there's always been oppression. There's always been violence because of it. But we need to keep that eternal perspective. We need to realize that every dollar that that oppressor, that wicked man gets, every dollar he gets and does not thank the Lord for it, he has just reaped another coal in his head. God is just, and he is a just judge. And the greater the evil, the more just or severe the punishment. And we shouldn't respond to that with a kind of schadenfreude, a kind of a glee that this, this guy's really going to get it at the last day. We shouldn't be seeking only an earthly justice because any justice of man needs to be repented of because we're sinners. Our justice is always going to be imperfect justice. No, we need to set our sights more eternally on, on what the Lord will do to set things right. We don't get any of the glory in Revelation 21. That all belongs to Christ for making all things new, for making the sad things come untrue. So when we see injustice and experience, the other thing we should do is to not do nothing. Inaction is not an option. The wicked here are condemned for not ameliorating the situation of the poor and oppressed. If you think about it, the office of deacon was set up in Acts 6 as a result of ethnic and racial sin. The the Israeli Jews were getting the daily portion of the bread, but the Hellenistic, the Greek Jews, were not. And they cried, this is unfair, this is unjust. And what did the apostles do? They didn't say, we want to pray about that. They did pray. And they did act, seek God's counsel, but what they did is they set up a very real material resolution to this. They moved, they acted, and they set up the office of deacon so that justice would be served that mercy and grace would be shown. Last place I'm going to take us before we close here is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is where Paul is talking about the different parts, like the eye and the hand, uh, and how Christ is the head of the, the church. So I'm going to start in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
So let me put this question before you. Who in our churches and our culture have historically been dishonored? What are we called to do based on this verse? Several years ago, the General Assembly put out a statement on racial reconciliation where we repented as a denomination of historical uh, discrimination and racism present in the PCA church. We've admitted as a denomination we have not honored our black and brown-skinned congregants or our neighbors. And according to this verse, in addition to repentance, and part of that which we need to repent is the lack of honor that we showed them when we would not let them into our churches, when we would not marry them. We had to repent of that. And now here, we must be careful not to buy into the lie that honor and dignity is a zero-sum game, where if I honor you with my time, if I honor you with my, the fruits of my labor, if I honor you with how I speak, that, that necessarily means there's less honor and dignity for me. That is exactly the opposite of what this verse is saying. It's saying when we have the opportunity to honor those who have been dishonored, to show dignity to those who have been denied that, all of us have all the more reason to rejoice. Similarly, Peter chastised Paul for not honoring the Gentiles by not sitting with them and eating them. No one is immune to this. If it took one apostle to call out another apostle and how he was treating, even if there was intention or not intentional, he was not honoring those who had been dishonored in the Jewish community. Peter, you're not eating with the Gentiles. That sends a message. You need to be careful. Inaction is not an option. And then finally, we need to remember our motivation. Um, as we pursue justice, as we pursue righteousness, as we pursue uh, to bring uh, the heavenly kingdom to earth, as it were. Um, we're, not in cap we're not in search of gotcha moments. We're not trying to score points. This isn't a game. We're certainly not supposed to be posting Facebook posts about how awesome we are as a church and all the glorious things we did uh, to brag, like the Pharisees who made this great show of uh, the, the gifts that they were making in the offering or how elaborate their prayers were because Jesus said, you've already gotten your reward for men. You've foregone the greater reward in heaven if you would have done this quietly. You got your reward from heaven, there's not, or reward from men, there's nothing left for you. No, we, we need to do this with humility. We need to pursue uh, out of the same motivation that the, the psalmist comes to. This is about a faith in the sovereignty of God and I'll, I'll close with this uh, quote from Calvin. We no doubt all agree in admitting that the world is governed by the hand of God, but were this truth deeply rooted in our hearts, our faith would be distinguished by far greater steadiness and perseverance in surmounting the temptations with which we are assailed in adversity. But when the smallest temptation which we, with which we meet uh, dislodges this doctrine from our minds, it's obvious that we have not yet been truly and in good earnest convinced of this truth. But may our hearts be full of faith. May we know in our very bones that God is sovereign. And may our motivation, just as how the psalm ended, be to witness to the goodness and the mercy of God. God is sovereign over my suffering. And even in my suffering, I found ways and reasons to praise him and let me tell you about it. And by doing so, maybe, if God wills it, 
then some may come to know him as their savior in the church and we all will be richer for the experience. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we pray for, for the heart of, and mind of Christ to have a love for the lost, to long to tell of your goodness, uh, whether it's your goodness and the bounty you have shown us or your goodness and the suffering that you have sovereignly ordained for us to, to travail through. Lord, we pray that we would um, always have a strong faith in your sovereignty and to not despair when it seems that wicked is prospering, when oppression is abounding and it seems like there are no, no ways to stop it. Lord, we know that you are sovereign, you are king, you are judge, and the man at your right hand, even Christ, will execute a perfect and righteous judgment at the last day. And we know and rest and, and revel in the beneficence and goodness that you show your people, that you show us, that you show me. Lord, we pray that you would bless us this week, and we pray this in Jesus' name.